Thank you, brother. Please keep your Bibles open, that passage, though I will have the words uh, from the scriptures on the screen. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak and that you speak in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within and amongst us. We pray that you'd help us now to tremble and delight at your word and that you would, by the work of your spirit in us as we consider your word, be transformed more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Although death is a huge part of human experience, it's often a difficult thing to know how to approach. Grieving for the dead falls into two broad categories, two kinds of sting that death usually inflicts upon the living. On the one hand, we mourn for what was, but now is no more. The loss of relationship, the loss of the good that the person had and did. On the other hand, there's the removal of possibility. If we have some sort of relational trouble with the deceased, some sort of relational tension, perhaps we long for the relationship to develop beyond where it currently is, and then death comes along and it, well, it puts an end to that potential. What the relationship once at least had a chance of being well, it will now never come to pass. Our grief at the death of someone known to us is the grief of losing the good, no matter what, and can also often include losing the potential for the good that we would have longed for. It ought to come as no surprise to us that the scriptures have very much to say about how we approach the death of others. Because unless you yourself die when you're really young... I've got a horrible newsflash for you. You will almost certainly have to deal with the stings of death and probably many times over. As the church of God, what are we to keep in mind when we face that savage sting of death? Well, of course, today's passage that we just had read out for us has much to say regarding this topic. And uh, it is a topic that, like I said, will at many times be highly relevant to each of us individually, but also... Uh, to the church corporate. Uh, we are, of course, in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. We only started this, uh, or recommenced this sermon series last week. And uh, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, King David has just learned that King Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, who David loved dearly, are now dead. Now, even though David hasn't had a coronation, and even though his kingship was only recognised in Judah, which is just one of the 12 tribes, he's not recognised as king in the other 11 tribes. In reality, now that Saul was dead, David was the new king in Israel. And David's first big public act as the new king was to show great grace and compassion to his people by teaching them a lament for the death of Saul and Jonathan. So it starts verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and he ordered that the people of Judah so this is a kingly order be taught this lament of the bow that's obviously the title he gave it it is written in the book of Jashar anyone been reading the book of Jashar recently Harry Potter book of Jashar yeah no okay uh yeah well uh, the book of Jashar it could also translate in the bible will tell you this the book of the upright it's just a Hebrew word Yashar mean uh, upright 
Uh, it's possibly a collection of psalms or writings by important figures from Israel's history. It is long lost to us now. But whether he realised it or not, as the new king, David was actually teaching the word of God to his people because whoever compiled the books of 1 and 2 Samuel thankfully saw fit to include the full text of his lament. And one of the reasons it's a really gracious act that this new king has done is that, well, a lament gives words to grief. A lament gives words to grief. And words are important for us because we're humans. And humans are these strange creatures that are created in the image of God. And God is a God who speaks. And being able to express grief in words is not surprisingly part of the way that God teaches us to approach the reality of death. David begins the lament, verse 19, saying, A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Uh, the word for gazelle could also be translated glory or, or dignified person. But either way, it's the same idea, right? Something good and praiseworthy is now destroyed, slain like an animal. Hence, the theme of lament is captured in the expression that comes immediately afterwards. And it's an expression that occurs three times in this psalm. How the mighty have fallen. How the unexpected thing has come to be. How the thing that should not be has yet come to pass. Even though David knew Saul would somehow be removed... The unnaturalness of death always seems to be a striking feature. I know we call it natural when someone dies in their old age, perhaps, but we also rightly perceive that death is entirely unnatural, even when it contains elements of relief for those who might have watched it slowly rather than suddenly take some away, uh, someone away from them. When it's sudden, it's worse because there's the shock and the offence and the grief all at same moment. And so David's lament then gives validation to the idea that we actually rage against reality. We speak in anguish about something that we don't want to happen, even though we know it has already happened. This is what David does, verse 20, and I think it's really important that this is validated for us. Tell it not in Gath, he says. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Gath and Ashkelon, they're Philistine towns. They're the enemies of Israel. And you and I sadly already know, because we saw it in 1 Samuel chapter 31, and David definitely would have known, because he's actually a, a fake Philistine at the moment. That's, that's a story for another day. But he would definitely have known that the announcement that Saul and his sons were struck down, of course, has already been trumpeted very loudly in all the Philistine cities. And of course, all the daughters of the uncircumcised are already rejoicing at Saul's demise. Yet, in the face of what he even knows to be reality, David still in anger and in sadness yells out, no, let it not be so. In our culture, we have this habit of calling that denial, which is all well and good, but I don't think we'd ever want to call it wrong. I've seen a most dreadful example of this, sadly. 
of a friend who's also in ministry, and many years ago he uh, had the, un well, the fortunate and unfortunate job of comforting a family who'd lost, sadly, a very young child. Praise God, this was a Christian family. But he said to me he knew that progress was being made when after six weeks <clears throat> the father stopped praying that God would resurrect the child from the grave and, and bring the child back into their home. And he began to accept what he already knew in his mind, that the child already was truly resurrected to be with the Lord in eternity. But you don't call that wrong, do you? There's an appropriateness to raging even against reality when it comes, in some circumstances, to grieving for the departed. And David continues to do that in the next verse especially, this is the anger bit I think, where he pronounces a curse on the ground where Saul and Jonathan's blood was spilled. Uh, I remember as a young man, if me and my friends really liked a particular girl, so, you know, the expression was, you worship the ground she walks on, right? So that sort of idea. Well, there's a negative version. If something really terrible has happened and you're in ancient Israel, you say, I curse the ground where that happened. And that's what David does. Verse 21, mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul and probably his sons were killed. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, may no showers fall on your terrace fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. Now, I've had to guess, I don't know that, I don't think that David literally had in mind that in one particular area there would be no rain. Uh, hence, no fertility. I mean, of course, God can do that, and he, you know, he's very capable of holding off the rain in a given area. But I think the idea is that we're to see through David's eyes this act, this death, is so offensive, so striking that well, we'd want to respond by calling down a curse from God. May that ground be cursed. And one reason this case is particularly tragic is that Saul is no longer the Lord's anointed. I, th I don't know whether I said this here last week or not, but anyway, it bears repeating, right? This is a tiny little quick lesson that everyone needs to know, right? The Lord's anointed means literally the one who has oil poured on his head. But that's an old-fashioned way of saying this person is chosen for a special office by God. As a matter of fact, our current queen, Queen Elizabeth, actually at her coronation had oil poured on her head. She was anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which of course we translate in English, Messiah. In Greek, they call that same thing Christos, from where we get Christ. All right? So a king of Israel is a Messiah, a Christ. Now, of course, throughout the Old Testament, people began to hear through God's prophets about not just a Messiah, a Christ, but the Messiah, the Christ, the one whose kingdom would be eternal, which of course is Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I tell you that because here, in uh, the end of verse 21, which we just looked at it, where it says, Saul's shield was rubbed with oil. Well, it, literally, it's Saul's shield was anointed with oil, and the word for that is Mashiach. It's a poetic way of saying Saul, God's Messiah, is dead, and that's why this really sucks. You see, God ideally would rule his people through the rule of his chosen king, through the rule of his Messiah. And so when the Lord's anointed is dead, 
it's fitting that we associate it with it like a curse upon the land itself. Then we have, within the lament, some words of eulogy. Eulogy literally means to speak favourably or to praise someone or something. The eulogy David gives is not at all a balanced assessment of Saul. Um, you guys all know that there's some things about Saul that make him very unpraiseworthy, very unfavourable. But brothers and sisters, a significant part of grieving for the dead is mourning the good that is now lost. The good that is now lost is a big part of the sting of death to which we're right to give voice. And so from verse 22, the eulogy goes, From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, from the bow, uh, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Great words of praise. And when you remember that in this time and context, the job of the Lord's anointed was basically to rid Israel of the threat of conquest from her enemies, well, then you see that bravery and battle readiness, not shrinking back at the whole blood and gutsiness of war, that was indeed a great thing. Hence, the loss of such qualities is to be seen as tragic. So verse 24 Daughters of Israel, and this is the command in the lament, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. little parallelism. I don't want the daughters of the Phil those uncircumcised Philistines to, to rejoice, and I do want you, daughters of Israel, to weep. Now, of course, you and I know, because we've read or we know something about 1 Samuel, I hope, that the shortcomings of Saul's kingship were many. The reason he died was actually that he was rejected as the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. He was set up as the king who would be the kind of king who would take rather than give the scarlet and finery to the, the daughters of Israel. But yet again, a eulogy isn't supposed to be a balanced assessment, but something that gives voice to the good that has been lost. And Saul did obviously provide some level of economic stability and goodness during his kingship because, well, he wasn't afraid to go into the battle against the enemies of God's people. And with that, we come to what on first reading you might assume is the end of the lament. Just the end of uh, halfway through that verse uh, 25a there, but how the mighty have fallen. It makes a nice little package, you know, this is kind of the end of the lament. But it wouldn't be enough to just give voice to the communal grief that David wants everyone to, to partake in. It's also right that David gives words to his own personal grief. Not so much in the death of Saul, significant as that was to him, but now in the death of his dear friend, Jonathan. At the very beginning of the lament, remember David said that a gazelle, or perhaps a, a glorious person, lies slain on the heights. We're right to see that as referring to the Lord's anointed, to Saul. Saul lays dead. But now David makes it clear that his personal grief is, not surprisingly, over Jonathan. And so he says, now instead of the gazelle, the glory lies slain, he says, Jonathan, 
lies slain on your heights. He was the one to whom David wanted to credit with glory. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And then he ends the psalm with the refrain, how the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. We know from the book of 1 Samuel that Jonathan was fiercely loyal to David. Even though he was the crown prince, the next in line to become the king, he renounced his own claim to the throne and made a covenant, an agreement with David, who he knew would be the next king of Israel, according to God's own heart. And yet like he, also like David, had refused to raise his hand against Saul, against the Lord's anointed. He remained a faithful son to his father Saul, even to the point where he would be struck down on the same battlefield. Must have been a hard thing for Jonathan to negotiate. He actually believed in the kingship of David. And yet Saul was his father and he was loyal to the Lord's anointed. I think there's something exemplary about what Jonathan has done there. You know that hard thing that always Christians face when you know you've got to honour your mother and father, but in some cases they might not even be saved or they might not be particularly uh, gospel focused. And it's sort of hard to know at what point do I kind of stand by them and at what point do I, do I deviate? Well, I think Jonathan does the right thing. He stays loyal to his father, even though he then pledges his oath to David, saying, I know that eventually my father will be removed and I'll be in the kingdom run by David. And friends, if I had to guess, I reckon David surely had in mind that one day he would definitely be king and he'd have the tremendous joy of having Jonathan as his right-hand man. Jonathan's good for the job. He's a skilled archer, skilled warrior. And so David no doubt grieves the good not only of what was lost, but also the good that might otherwise have been. I once attended a funeral of a man who died from memory from a heart attack and he was really close to retiring. And I just remember his wife said words to the effect of, I'd been looking really forward to the newfound sort of life we're going to have together in retirement and and so I feel really robbed that death has come just before that was supposed to happen. So even when the death isn't cutting off the possibility of a more ideal relationship, they were a soundly married couple, it still cuts off the possibility of enjoying that relationship longer, seeing the fruits of it any longer. David's relationship with Jonathan was an ideal friendship and he rightly gives voice to the loss of potential of enjoying that relationship any longer. And therefore, guys, I've got to tell you, as a very important aside, that it's such a dreadful thing and a bit of a facepalm thing, really, that some people who have absorbed the current thinking of our debased culture try to make the argument that David's words here imply he had a homosexual relationship with Jonathan, like you'll find on the very first webpage that came up when I did a Google search on this issue. Clearly, it's a stupid argument. I mean, the Levitical law, which David and all Israel would have known, points out that it's detestable for a man to have sexual relations with a man as one would a woman. So if David thought there was even a possibility that what he 
was writing to the whole of Judah and possibly the whole of Israel would be, you know, received in such a way as to, to imply that that's what he and Jonathan were like, well, there's absolutely no way he'd have put such words in a psalm. Even if he was homosexual, which he clearly was not. I've got news for you. David kind of liked women. <laughs> He's got a couple of wives already and uh, we know where the story's headed, right? And it's going to be used down for them. What David is obviously speaking of is this wonderful thing that we used to be able to enjoy called friendship. It's a really good gift of God. And the thing that makes it stand out, probably and very ironically if I'm right, is the fact that there is no complicating sexual element as you would expect there to be if it's male and female as opposed to two people of the same sex. I think that's the thing he's getting at when he says it's more wonderful. And we all know this to be the case. I love women. I have lots of female friends who are, whose friendship I delight in. I've got lots of males whose friendship I delight in. And I'm sure that you're very glad to hear that there's certain activities and behaviours that I just won't involve myself in in the presence of females that I would quite happily with males. And I assume the same thing's vice versa. We know instinctively when the... the the sexual element is non-existent. There's a certain freedom and, and a certain, you know, it, it, it determines our behaviours more than, you know, when, when it's not. And I've even read things by same-sex attracted Christians, Christians who have an unwanted same-sex attraction, both male and female, and I think within the last year, who've said that one of the most wonderful and helpful things for them in their journey and their struggle has been friendships that they've had with other Christians who are people of the same sex, where they yet understand that there's absolutely no romantic element because, you know, the friends are straight. Friendship, it's a really good thing. And it's really sad when it's lost. And so David is telling anyone who, who would listen, just as we ought to tell, I think, anyone who would listen, about the loss of a wonderful blessing from God that we all know as friendship. But coming back to our passage, three times now we've heard the refrain, how the mighty have fallen. It's obvious that if David, the new Messiah, somehow had the power to reverse reality at this point, he most certainly would. He's raged against it, he would reverse it. In fact, we're right to consider that. We're right to wonder if only he could reverse Reality, and I'll tell you why we're right to consider that. Because if you've got an incredible memory, or you sort of are quite familiar with 1 Samuel, you remember that all the way back in the opening of 1 Samuel, God used, as he typically does, a downtrodden, largely insignificant woman named Hannah to give a prophetic prayer that would, of course, determine much of the history of God's people that we read about in these books. So like God to do that, to choose the weak and unimpressive things, to be really sort of super important in his kingdom and his plan. In her praise of God, Hannah, after the Lord had opened a womb and she'd been able to give birth miraculously to Samuel, Hannah said, the bows of the warriors are broken. And how right she was regarding Jonathan, who was a skilled archer. But then she also said, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. When are we going to see that? Two verses later, she said, the Lord brings death. Well, yes, the Lord had actually prophesied that Saul and his sons would all die 
on the same day. The Lord made that happen. But she also says he makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. How is he going to do that? Through whom does he exercise his power to make that happen? Well, the very end of Hannah's prayer, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, that is the power, because an animal has a horn, that's very, you exalt the power of his Mashiach, of his Messiah, of his anointed. So you're actually right to think, can God's chosen king reverse reality? He's even raged against it. Jonathan loved David and had laid down his own crown in order to honour him. If only David, as the Lord's anointed, had the power to raise up Jonathan from the grave so that he could then rule at David's right side. But David, also being a prophet, he was not only a king, he was also a prophet, did see what was to come. He saw that Israel's ultimate Messiah, the Messiah, would himself be raised from the grave and would also have power to grant the resurrection to eternal life for all who love him. Jesus, of course, laments the reality of death even more than his predecessor, King David. And now that Jesus' kingdom, in case you didn't know this, has come into effect, has been inaugurated, well, it is only a matter of time before those who love him, even those who've fallen asleep in death, will be raised bodily to everlasting life. God's king, both David, the forerunner, and of course, his ultimate king, Jesus the Messiah, especially laments the death of those who love him. And therefore, he will one day reverse the reality of death for them. This is actually a profoundly central Christian teaching and hope. The reason a Christian funeral is always so much more satisfying than a non-Christian funeral is because despite the very real grieving that the word of God gives validation to, we who know and love the Lord know that the relationship is not over. All that was good about them is not ultimately lost. In fact, all that was good about them is what's actually going to remain. And we will get to enjoy it with them as people who are in Christ for all eternity. Once upon a time, I was at a funeral of a friend who was a convert. He'd become a follower of Jesus, praise God. But his family and his background were Islamic, so he had a Muslim family and therefore had a Muslim funeral. Thank God in his kindness, I was allowed to give a eulogy, so there was gospel content at this particular funeral. But uh, I'm not sure if you know this, in, in Muslim tradition, when it comes to the burial, they have the, a wrapped body that they remove from the coffin, and in this case, the coffin gets smashed up, which I think is kind of cool. It's like we, you know, we rage against the reality of death. They got that. But then the imam said, as they put the body in the ground, a whole lot, bunch of words in Arabic, and then he translated, he said, basically, I'm praying to Allah that hopefully this guy was good enough to be accepted into eternity with Allah. Uh, 
thank the good Lord I knew the truth that Jesus had done everything for this guy to be accepted no matter what. But what a hopeless and terrible failure, <laughs> frankly. I've seen it at Roman Catholic funerals as well, not as blatant as that, but the idea of purgatory, the person's got to pay off a whole lot of you know, debt while they're suffering fire until there's kind of got enough credit to be absolutely blasphemous and heretical and unbiblical. How much better it is when someone knows the Lord and people know that they knew the Lord, that they are with God in eternity in heaven. And by the way, the only worst funeral that I can think of is when the family are all Christian, but the deceased is not. Friends, I'm going to say this, I didn't say it this morning, but I'll say it because we've got a very young congregation here. The Bible teaches that marrying a non-Christian is not only wrong, it's sinful. It's actually an offence to God. And therefore, dating a non-Christian, if you're going to obey God and not let it end in marriage, is only ever always selfish and ungodly. But it's worse than that. You hear people always try to justify it by saying something like, oh, well, what if, you know, God put that person in my life and I could save them? I'll tell you what the answer to that question is. The answer is God condemns false teachers. God condemns false teachers. You see, here's what's happening. No matter how much gospel you might tell to this person you have a romantic relationship with, no matter how much you bring into church or whatever, you are preaching a gospel to them. And the gospel you're preaching to that person is, Jesus is Lord, except when you don't want him to be. That gospel there is Satan's favourite gospel. Almost all true, but a tiny bit absolutely undermines it. Jesus is Lord, except when you don't want him to be. You make it harder, humanly speaking, far less likely that that person will ever be saved by your false teaching. And your false teaching is your activity. You'll actually know them by their words. Well, yes, but you will know them by their fruits. I'm going to read you a little something that I think is absolutely wonderful, written by a guy who fell away from Christ and who came back many years later. He writes, To my Christian sisters and brothers who are either single or dating a non-Christian, let me plead with you, be careful. In fact, I might as well say what I really want to say. If you're dating a non-Christian, please break it off. There's just too much at stake. I'll even give you the script, he says, quote, I really like you and I love spending time with you, but I love Jesus more. And unless you say yes to him, I can't say yes to you. We can't have a long-term future together. If you want to investigate Christianity and consider accepting Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I'm happy to talk to you about it. And depending on what you decide, we can revisit our relationship later but it will be a lot fairer and less complicated for both of us if we stop dating while you make up your mind about Jesus. 
Brilliant words. If you want this, I've got a whole bunch of them, by the way. One of the best stories I've ever heard in this regard that ought to um, set you straight is uh, of a... It was a guy who was not a Christian and a Christian girl started dating him. And you know what happened? Miraculously, because God's a profoundly gracious God and God's the one who chooses, he chose this guy to get saved. What do you think this guy did once he started learning and growing in the grace and love of Jesus? What do you reckon he did? He dumped the girl. Of course he did. Because he said, I want to be someone who takes Jesus seriously. You clearly didn't because you dated a non-Christian. And so he dumped her. I would hate to be the one in a situation where come the end of my married life, I would have to say goodbye to my spouse for all eternity. And even though people say, oh, well, I know marrying them is wrong, but I'm dating them. No, man. You're just putting yourself on that path. I've seen it too many times myself. Don't do it. Now, by way of implication, in the case of King David, those who loved the king, like Jonathan, are those he deeply laments concerning their loss, concerning their death. In the case of Jesus, who's not just a Messiah, but the Messiah whose horn has been exalted, those who love him will be raised up to rule with him for all eternity. And love for Jesus isn't just to think highly of him or to feel positive toward him. That's not love. It's to give up your own claim to the throne like Jonathan did, to give up your own ruling and to joyfully accept his rule. Jesus says, those who love me will obey my commands. And those who endure, because it's an endurance thing, will also reign with him, 2 Timothy 2. For anyone, by the way, who's not yet a Christian, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, well, what possible good reason do you have for not turning to him in repentance and faith right now? You can go it your own way and there'll just be a horrible lament at the end and that'll be a life wasted. Or you can give up your own life, give up your crown and serve him and enjoy the resurrection to eternal life, both now spiritually and then physically. Turn, repent, make Jesus your Lord and your Saviour, make him the king. Because I've got news for you, he actually is the king. God's the one that's installed him by his resurrection from the dead. To reject him is actually to reject reality and this is not a good rejection of reality. Finally, for we who are in Christ and are not spared, sadly, from the stings of death in the here and now, we are yet spared from the ultimate sting of death, namely sin. Sin is the real sting of death. That's the thing that renders us liable to judgment. You die in your sin, you face God in judgment. The fact that Jesus' death removes all penalty for our sin, past, present and future, means that the real sting namely facing God in judgment for our sin, is totally and irreversibly taken away. So whilst we grieve, sometimes very deeply, rightly, sometimes very bitterly, we don't yet grieve like the rest. David taught people a wonderful lament that helps us deal with grief. But on this side of the cross, we got some even better words. 
You got some words from the Apostle Paul that I use every Christian funeral. So does the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, by the way. And they're words with which we are instructed to encourage one another. So rather than my usual practice of concluding with prayer, normally I pray at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to do what Paul says. I'm going to encourage you and we will be encouraged by the words that are given us this side of Christ uh, to help us in our time of enduring grief for the dead. 1 Thessalonians from chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I think you're supposed to read that as they'll be given their resurrection bodies first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will be with the Lord forever, and therefore we'll also be with them forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen.